The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the gift and the promise of Your Holy Spirit. And we uh, pray now as we learn about Pentecost, which we will celebrate officially next week, uh, that You would send Your Spirit both upon me as the teacher and upon all of us as, as receivers, as recipients, as learners, God, that we would ourselves be devoted to the Apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to breaking of bread and to prayer. We thank You that that is the promise and the gift of Your Spirit as well as the forgiveness of our sins and, and Your indwelling presence with us. So we come now trusting that You are uh, with us and we are open to You and submitting to You. And, and if there's any good that comes from this class, Lord, we will be quick uh, to offer You praise. It is for Your glory and Your name and Your fame. Amen. Amen. All right. So next week, uh, we are going to not have rectors forum. We have the one service uh, for Pentecost. It's at 9.30, and we'll have a big family lunch. So we're not going to have rectors forum. And I've been doing a lot of thinking and praying about... Uh, we've been in this for, gosh, 10 months now. Uh, the E100, 9 or 10 months. And we're going to take some time off for the summer. Um, what we're, gonna, we're not going to take time off for rectors forum, so there's still going to be a really uh, a good program. But I've just, we're going to do a, a, a program that says, is called Gospel in Life. Timothy Keller, Tim Keller, is a, uh, it's his program. It's about a 10-minute video and then some discussion. And what I would love is for that to be lay-led. And so if you're interested in leading that, let me know. I've got a few of you in mind that I think would be particularly good at it. Uh, but I've not reached out to anybody uh, yet. So uh, that's an eight-week course, and then we'll get back to E100 after that. So, um, but I think that's going to work well. Uh, I, myself, just need, I hope you understand, just need a kind of a break from it. So, um, so I, I have some things that I want to accomplish this summer. This will help me with that. Um, one, of the, one of them is sleep. Um, all right. <laughs> so next week uh, we're off. So this will be the last one. And in fact, we're studying Pentecost today. So next week is Pentecost. But today we're studying this in Acts chapter 2. And the giving of the Holy Spirit, that kind of is going to make a, a pretty good break in a, a, a sort of logical event break for us to... We've come all the way from, the, from creation now to the beginning of new creation. And, uh, and then we'll go through the epistles and on into Revelation starting in, in August. John Stott wrote this about Pentecost in his commentary on uh, Acts, wrote this about Pentecost. Without the Holy Spirit... Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, even impossible. There can be no life without the life giver, no understanding without the Spirit of truth, no fellowship without the unity of the Spirit, no Christ-likeness of character apart from His fruit, and no effective witness without His power. As a body without breath is a corpse, so the church without the Spirit is dead. Pretty remarkable, and yet very clear, very insightful, very true. We must have the Holy Spirit to be the church. If the Holy Spirit doesn't show up, then this is all form and formality, but no substance. It's the Holy Spirit that gives everything we do meaning and substance. So, next week is the day that we uh, will mark as Pentecost. 
the date changes because the date for Easter changes. Pentecost is always 50 days after Easter. And the word Pentecost means 50th. I think it's Greek. Pretty sure. And so sometimes in the church we call this Easter period the great 50 days. So we're told that um, after the resurrection, 40 days after the resurrection, Jesus ascended. And then 10 days after He ascended, the Holy Spirit came. 40 plus 10 is 50. Uh, Pentecost was always a, a Jewish festival. And so it wasn't, it was, that was just the name of the festival already, Pentecost. It was a harvest festival. Yeah, Pentecost means 50th. It doesn't, it doesn't mean the coming of the Holy Spirit. So they were having this harvest festival. And the reason is because the grain harvest um, started around the Passover and, and it took about 50 days. And then they would celebrate the, um, the festival of the, this sort of middle harvest festival. Um, there's three harvest festivals. And Pentecost was the middle one. But it became, actually, in Jesus' time, it became known historically as the time that they would remember the anniversary of the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. You remember that story? Moses standing with the, great, the fearsome clouds and the mighty wind and the fire. And it makes really good sense that that's when the Holy Spirit would come. And you hear a lot of similarities right there. But traditionally, 50 days after they left Egypt, they made it to Mount Sinai, and that's when the, we had the giving of the law. So this was becoming recognized um, historically as well. So agriculturally and historical significance there. But um, it's, just, it's just the festival the Jews were having at the time when this happened. Acts 2 is where we hear about Pentecost. It has three sections. Uh, there's, you might think of it like this. The Pentecost event... Pentecost is explained, and then Pentecost is expanded. So we have the events themselves, the tongues of fire, and the wind, and the, um, and the people uh, in different languages. And then we have Peter giving his remarkable sermon, explaining what has just happened. And then we see people come to faith, and we see the, the, really the, the description of the earliest, the earliest description of the church. And so we have verses 1 through 13 is the event. Verses 14 through 41 is Peter's sermon uh, and the explanation of that. And then the expansion of, of this, the uh, Holy Spirit in the life of the church in the last chapter. You, Acts, 42, or Acts 2, 42 is, is a famous passage. And, um, and that is, uh, you know, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the, and the prayers. Next week in church, we're going to focus on the event itself. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that here, but I don't want, and there'll be a little overlap, but, but um, I only am so creative. You know, so if I say it this time, it'll be just here it again next time. We want you to come back, so. Um, but this week, we want to focus on the uh, explanation. So if you were to read, and I hope you have read the, uh, the first, uh, this chapter, and, and what, what we see is that they're, they're all gathered together in one room. Uh, Jesus said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit before He ascended. He said, not many days from now. So it's just ten days. Not many days from now, the Spirit's going to come upon you. They're all sitting there. They're praying in Jerusalem. And this, my, this sound comes. It, it doesn't say it was windy. 
but it was a sound like a rushing wind. It doesn't say it was fire, but tongues like fire. So a sound like wind and tongues like fire. I don't, what that meant, I'm not sure, but it, the tongues came and rested upon each one of them. And that is significant because the Holy Spirit had only been given to particular people for particular purposes, and now it's being given to everyone. And that's really the, the importance of Pentecost, because now the Holy Spirit, the indwelling presence of God, is available to everyone uh, who believes in Christ and um, uh, for all times, not just for specific times, for all purposes, not just specific purposes. And that is a, a remarkable uh, truth. So, um, I don't want to get too much into speaking in tongues. Uh, maybe when we get to Corinthians, we'll talk about that. Uh, but I, what was happening here was a miracle of communication. Right? So, it's unclear, and you can imagine scholars have gone back and forth what exactly is happening. But at the very least, it said that they were, the Holy Spirit gave them power to speak in other languages. And maybe that's this sort of um, guttural utterances, but, but what happens next is when they go out, all the people who are around from all different nationalities... Uh, whether they are residents of Jerusalem and they hear it, or whether they're in town for the festival uh, they on a pilgrimage, they can hear it. it says, in our own native languages. And it lists all of, uh, all of the different nationalities. It says, every nation under heaven. Well, we don't have to say, well, they're from Australia and China. Like, we don't, it, it just, it was the, in the Greco-Roman Mediterranean world. They were there. And the, but the languages were incredibly diverse. Now, one thing I'm probably not, may, I might, but I'm probably not going to talk too much about next week is that scholars have often saw that, seen this as a reversal of the Tower of Babel, or Babel. I say Babel, but when we taught on it in September, you guys gave me all kinds of heck about it. So it's Babel, not Babel. So, <laughs> potato, potato, right? Okay. Oh. All right, yeah, potato, potato, Babel, Babel. All right, so the Tower of Babel. Um, and, and you remember that. So they were, they were uh, in their pride, and this is before even God spoke to Abraham. In their pride, there was one language, and they were going to build a, a tower, a sort of a temple that reached to heaven. And God said, we can't let that happen. And so God breaks down in whatever means, tears down the, the temple, the ziggurat was the name of it, and then sent them out and dispersed them and confused their languages so they could not communicate with one another effectively. It would have been incredibly interesting to see how far they got and what their plan was to reach heaven. Um, I don't know. I, it, it's, just, it's, it's remarkable the technology that they, and the ingenuity that they had then because they didn't have computers was actually really impressive. Uh, I've been told by an architect friend of mine, I may have mentioned this before, we do not have the technology to build the pyramids as they are right now. Um, we could build pyramid-like structures, but to get with the weight and the, the, the stones and everything, and we just we couldn't do it. So, uh, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. But um, So anyway, they were... Uh, so God confused the languages... Because in their pride, they were moving up to heaven. Here, in His humility, God comes down from heaven and creates essentially one language, one communication. It's a reversal, in that sense, 
of the Tower of Babel. Babel, and um, and it's also um, it's also remarkable because uh, because not only is God giving His Spirit to one people, but now we begin to see the covenant of Abraham fulfilled that through His line all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now it's going out. The word of God is going out, beginning to go out through all the nations. And we'll actually see as we get into the book of Acts later. Just one second. I look forward to answering your question. Um, as we as we see the, through the book of Acts that we do get the um, the not just the Jews but the Gentiles as well receive the gospel. Yes, Xavier. What was your question, sir? Did you have a question? Yeah. You didn't have a question. Okay, you're just waving. All right, good. All right. So um, this is a spirit-enabled miracle of communication. You have these. Uh, the Galileans were they were sort of uh, backwoods. They were, uh, I don't want to say that, like what we would say now because somebody's going to be from there, but um, um, like from South Carolina. I, I can say that, I guess, because that's where I'm from. Uh, but all, what are all these South Carolinians doing speaking? Our, actually, uh, we had some friends. Uh, when, when I was in high school, uh, we had uh, some exchange students uh, in, a, in a program set up by President Reagan uh, where students from our school got to go to Russia. And there was about 25 different schools uh, around the country that had Russian language programs that got to go in this exchange program. And our students got made fun of simply because they were from South Carolina. Uh, and when they ran into, I think they were from Arizona or whatever. It's like, what are those? Arizona, what is that? Okay, so anyway, these backwoods Galileans suddenly could speak other earthly languages to proclaim the mighty works of God. Now you've had some scholars who have said what was astonishing was not the language, because they, they wouldn't have thought of that, but it was just the content, because they're speaking about the mighty works of God. But I think it's pretty clear that not only is it the content, but the fact that the Galileans are speaking and the Cretans and the uh, Pamphylians and the Romans can all hear them in their own language. And whether they were speaking their own Galilean tongue and just what was heard was that language, or whether they actually could speak the language itself, I don't think it really matters. What, ha- what matters is that the Spirit used the words of these Galileans, these, the, the apostles, to speak to everyone there in their own native language such that they believed. But some people thought they were drunk, right? And Peter gets up and says, hey, it's only nine in the morning. That could never happen, which of course, so. um, Why are you laughing? Because we've been to tail, they hadn't invented tailgates at uh, this this point. Okay, all right. So, um, because we're Episcopalian, someone said, all right. all right, so I'm going to just read. This is remarkable because this is the guy. This is the fisherman, Peter, from Galilee. And uh, this is this, also the one who's, whose mouth is always getting in trouble with Jesus, uh, who 50 days earlier had denied, 53 days earlier, had denied that he even knew Jesus. And maybe 40 days earlier, he said, Ah, I'm going fishing. Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. I mean, so he's—I mean, he is—he's always stood at the front of the line with the apostles, but he is speaking with some real, um, almost Christ-like authority here, because he has the Spirit. But these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, and then he, and then Peter quotes the prophet Joel. 
In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and the signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's a big quotation from a fisherman. Now maybe he, uh, Peter said something like, you remember the passage in the, one of the prophets that said that I'm going to pour out my spirit? And then Luke later went and looked up the passage and wrote it down for us. Or, it could be that the Holy Spirit planted it because the Holy Spirit wrote it, and originally the Holy Spirit planted it in the mind and heart and mouth of Peter and spoke it uh, to these folks. Either way, I think you don't lose the significance of what happens. I tend to favor the latter, that, that God planted it in Peter's mind. Or Peter, just you know, who was still a smart guy, just studied Scripture with Jesus. Either way. He's, he's not saying, Listen, let me tell you what the prophet Joel said. He said, remember what the prophet Joel said, and that what the prophet Joel said is happening. What you're seeing now is not drunkenness. It is the Spirit of God being poured out on all flesh, just like the prophet said it was going to happen. What's also significant, rich and poor, young and old, male and female, that's what Joel said was going to happen. It wasn't just poetry, it was actuality. And it was poured out on everyone. We still have a lot of the um, sort of bias about who gets the Holy Spirit, right? Who is uh, real? But remember what Jesus had said. It, it, is, um, it is to their advantage. He, he talked about the giving of the Holy Spirit both before and after His resurrection. And He said, when I, before, his resurre- before His death, He said, uh, it is actually to, my adva- to your advantage that I'm going away. Because when I go away, I will be able to send the advocate, right? The paraclete, the, um, the helper. I love, I, I prefer the, the um, just for my own sensibilities, I love the translation advocate. He, he's the opposite of a critic, right? The Holy Spirit. So, um, so there will be a day when everyone gets my Holy Spirit. That was Joel's message. And probably like most things, they didn't have the capacity to even imagine that that meant truly everyone who believed. Um, And what Joel said is, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, I preached this before, back in Birmingham, uh, and the title of that sermon was The Exclusivity and the Inclusivity of the Gospel. The inclusivity of the Gospel is that everyone, everyone, there's no exception to anyone uh, who uh, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. There, there, it doesn't matter your race, your ethnicity, uh, your your background, your past, your what you've done. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's it's totally inclusive in that message, but it's also exclusive because it's everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. There, there's that condition in it. Um, and so, there is no limit to who can call on the name of the Lord, but that is the condition that we call on the name of the Lord. 
and what happens there is salvation. Um, what when I mean that's such a broad and sort of foundational word in our in the way that we talk as Christians or what we think about maybe maybe for you. What is meant in your mind when we talk about salvation? My guess is that it's going to be different based on your denominational background in the way it's framed. But actually the end result is probably about the same. So what, how, who would be willing to share what you think of when you think of salvation? Or do you? Being saved from your sins and being reconciled to God. Now, you actually have a pretty—you've sort of landed in the middle because you come from Roman Catholic and uh, and a sort of non-denominational background. You have both of those in your past. Being saved from your sins. Born again. And yeah, born again. Okay. What else? Anybody want to add to that or frame it a little bit differently? Yes, Charlene. Being able to spend the rest of your life with Jesus, and not just life here, but the rest of eternity, right? So, so it's actually the presence of your personal presence with the presence of God. Okay, sure. And then, which is not different than what Ellen has said by any means. Yeah, Amanda, you said we're going to say something. It starts now. It's a personal thing. Yeah, it's a personal relationship, but it starts now. It's not you're going to get it someday when you get to heaven. You're in the kingdom now. Right. You have stepped into eternity. Okay. Right. All right, Amanda, what were you going to say? Talk about the foundation of it based off of yours. Um, I came from a non-denominational um, upbringing, and, um, but a Catholic home. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, um, I think what was uh, turning for, my, for mine was when um, I understood the history of Martin Luther and the theses on the wall of mm-hmm. the doors of Wittenberg, the faith by which we are saved, salvation and not our works. Mm-hmm. And I think that was kind of the... Yeah, the faith has, is, is that component. That's the calling on the name of the Lord. And you're talking about Martin Luther and the nailing of the 95 Theses. You're speaking my love language. So that's, that's really wonderful. <laughs> um, but, but no, so all of these are really important. So yes, we procure um, the salvation from our sins, the forgiveness of our sins, so that we may live with Jesus. We procure that and it's appropriated to us by faith. But the reason that we can have the faith is because of what? The Holy Spirit coming and landing upon us, right? That's the only way. That is it. That's the only way. So, uh, you guys are getting it. That's fantastic. All right. So, Jesus, uh, so he tells, he, he quotes the prophet Joel and said, that what you're seeing in these this strange, I mean, very strange occurrence, everybody can speak in other languages and tongues of fire, mighty rushing wind, all this. What you're seeing is what was the prophet Joel said was going to happen. Now let me tell you the gospel. That's what Peter's saying. He frames it. says, everyone who calls the name of the Lord shall be saved. And let me tell you about the Lord. He says, he was a man. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man, attested to you by God by His mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him in your midst. I mean, it was just two months ago. They saw it. They remember. It hasn't left their memory at this point. As you yourselves know, he says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So what happened was all in the plan of God. You crucified. Peter doesn't pull a punch here. He says, you killed him, people, Jews. He's not just speaking to the religious authorities. He's speaking to everyone there. 
You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That's an offensive statement because they kept the law closer than anyone. Unless he's talking about the Romans. And then the law was sort of the Wild West. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So he says, Jesus was a man. He died at our hands and was raised again. So he's just giving him the facts of the gospel. Then he gives him another scripture passage. Um, he quotes a psalm written by David. I think it's Psalm 16. I saw the Lord always before me, for He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced, my flesh will also dwell in hope. In other words, my whole body is shaking with excitement, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. And Peter goes on to say, David's not talking about himself. Because David died. In fact, David's tomb is right here in Jerusalem. So who is David talking about except the one who was to come? That's what Peter's saying. And it's dawning on them that... So you have the apostolic witness of Peter, but you also have the witness of the Holy Scriptures, the Hebrew Scriptures, all pointing together. In a sense, you have the Old Testament and the New Testament beginning their first intersection right here because you have... Uh, all, we have this extremely Christological um, approach to the Old Testament Scriptures. It's all pointing towards Him. And then you have the beginning of what would become Scripture, uh, the apostolic witness in Peter's sermon, uh, and all pointing towards the crucified and resurrected Jesus. And it says they were cut to the heart. I love that. One of my, I, I just one of my favorite phrases in the whole book of Acts. They hear Peter's sermon. This Galilean fisherman probably spoke with a twangy southern accent, which is obviously near and dear to my heart. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, isn't that great? Brothers, what shall we do? There's this kinship between the people who have heard it, the Holy Spirit working in them to bring them to belief. That's the, the work of the Holy Spirit is that they were cut to the heart. Now they didn't have the tongues of fire, but they had the, there's a sacramental nature to the sermon that Peter gives. There's a sacramental nature to every sermon. It's not a sacrament, although Martin Luther said it was, preaching was a sacrament. But the church hadn't really recognized preaching as a sacrament, but there is, there is and there ought to be an intersection between the people of God and the Word of God, the presence of God, in the preaching of His Word. And so, because faith comes by hearing, which St. Paul would tell us later in the book of Romans, uh, they hear His Word, the Holy Spirit works in that, and they are cut to the heart. What shall we do? It's a reasonable question, isn't it? Because they, he just said they crucified Jesus. Now what? Peter said, repent and be baptized. Two things. Repent, be baptized. Do you remember what the definition of a sacrament is that you learned in uh, your catechism class? A sacrament is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. And we see that both right here. Repent. Out, uh, that's, that's inward, right? And spiritual. Repent. And be baptized. That is the outward and visible sign of the inward and spiritual grace. 
Why is repentance a spiritual grace? Is that an act? Is that your act? Or is that an act of the Holy Spirit? What do you think, Doc? That repentance is actually an act of the Holy Spirit. So I don't need to repent until the Holy Spirit comes upon me. Is that correct? Yeah. <laughs> I can't. But if I feel a need to repent, then I know the Holy Spirit's already working. Yes, so it is an act of your will, but you would not have that act of your will uh, if the Holy Spirit wasn't already at work in you. What is repentance? To turn around. To turn around? In the opposite direction. Move, move in the opposite direction? I think it's more mindful. Mindful. More mindful than uh, behavioral. Is that what you're saying? In what way? I don't disagree, but tell me what you mean. I think um, to repent, you just, it's more than just someone telling you, oh, you're doing the wrong thing um, as like a mother or a child, but you have to see, acknowledge the wrong, and then make a mindful change to go against their urges to do mm-hmm. what is more easy. Yeah, so you actually, Amanda talked about a, uh, a mother and a child. A mother can tell her child, you know, to stop, to change their behavior. And the child can re- change their behavior without any repentance, right? Because repentance is a, is a change of heart. It, it is not the, the declaration that you should change your behavior, but it is the realization that I shall change. First, my attitude, I think. My attitude towards God. Because if we get into a situation where we need repentance, we put ourselves in God's position, right? We've declared our own authority. So we're saying, actually, no, we need, we, we need to submit to God and we need to um, accept Him as our Savior. And then, and then, hopefully, that also has some behavioral ramifications as well, typically. But I don't think repentance is only um, behavioral. Repent and be baptized, which is the outward sign of the inward grace. Uh, yes, you may, Doc. What would you like to say about that? Yeah, part of part of the nature. What I think I think what you're part of what you're saying, Doc, is that is that part the nature of repentance changes when you become a Christian. That you're not only sorry for how your actions affect yourself, but you've actually become acutely aware that your actions have offended the God who loves you and created you. There, there is a, a not just a horizontal aspect. Maybe you're concerned with how that anybody can be sorry that they've hurt their neighbor or their family member. But, but there's a vertical acknowledgement that we, our actions have actually offended God because of the position. We kicked Him off the throne of our heart. Repentance is putting Him back on the throne. Right? And listen, that's daily. It's a, repentance is a daily, minute by minute, really, act uh, of, of the Spirit. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. He just said, you crucified Jesus. So come to Jesus. We find refuge in the one whom we, we have offended. That's the remarkable nature of the Gospel. We don't run from the one we've offended. We find refuge in Him. So when you repent and are baptized, you get two things. The forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
So the thing that you have just seen and heard, this mighty rushing wind, will also be yours through faith. Amanda said earlier. And it says that with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So what Luke is telling us is we don't get the whole sermon. We just get a little snapshot. And those who received his word that day were baptized, and there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. I long for the day where I see 3,000 people come to Christ. Now, you're laughing, but I'm serious. We'll get in, there's another part in Acts where, um, where Peter, uh, no, I think it's Paul, goes and, and preaches, and then the next week the whole town shows up. Like, that's just, if the whole hump of Mandarin came, and, uh, you know, because of, that would just blow me away. It would be awesome. I'm no Paul. All right, um, so here's what, here's what happens. So that's, that's the explanation. Maybe not coherent in, in my own uh, fault, but, but we have the event, but then we have the explanation through the lens of the prophet Joel, then we have the gospel, and we have repentance and baptism. And then we have what happens in the life of the church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. I love that. And that's what the Christian life ought to be. Christian life ought to be a life filled with awe. And I have many times said to myself that I have, I have lost my sense of awe. And, and that's part of repentance, is coming back and being awed by the majesty of God, not just the nature of, of repentance for your sins, but just once again being awed by God Himself. Awe came upon every soul. and Wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. It was, it was a special time. And, and all who believed were together. They had all things in common. Is that a mandate, you think? Are we to have all things in common as Christian believers? Is that for then? It's for now. Is it, for now? it is for now. What do, you, what do you think? Why is it for well, I'm asking, is that, was that for then or is that for always? It does say that, no question. The believers had all things in common. If you come and ask me my, for my car, I'm going to have a problem. You know? so. I think they need all things in common, like the same football teams, you know, or the same education, or the same background. I think all things in common would be according to what God would want us to have in common, which is the same faith in Christ, mm-hmm. the same outlook maybe, the same fellowship, the same fruits of the Spirit. So Ellen's saying, perhaps it's not just material possessions that we're talking about, but, in, but it's actually uh, the same faith. Perhaps. Most have, have taken this as material possessions. Um, I mean, it could, because we do give when we're called to give. I mean, that doesn't mean you turn around and give your car to somebody if that's not what God wants you to do, but I'm sure if the Spirit told you you needed to give your car to somebody, if we're listening to God, we probably would do it and be grateful to be able to do it, but... I would do it and be resentful, but I um the um <laughs> but um I, I do think I mean there have been plenty of communities who have tried this and most have succeeded for a while and then come to crashing failure. Uh, but so I think what's essential to share is the faith and to have a spirit of generosity to let you that you own your things your things don't own you. And that you can give them away, trusting that they all belong to God. But it is it says that they met in homes, so I mean, presumably people still own their own homes and things like that. So, yeah, I think it was about the heart. Because remember when the people what they sold the 
in the highest as if I ever sold that property. It wasn't the fact how much they sold it for or what they gave to the church. It was the fact that they lied. They yeah. could have sold it and said, I'll give you 10%, and they would have been happy. Yeah, the problem there was, was deceit. It was mm -hmm. their hearts. Yeah, she's talking about Acts chapter 5. Uh, Josh? Well, let's say later, later on in Acts, uh, when Paul's going on one of his journeys, one of his main things he's doing is fundraising for the church in Jerusalem. That's right. So there was inequality among the, the churches around Right, right. So yeah, there, there was a generosity, there was a giving, and in fact, we see that some people give out of their poverty too. I mean, so there's a there's a sense of spirit-led generosity uh, that should uh, always mark the church. It should mark your lives. It should mark my lives. Uh, but I don't think this is saying that we ought to live in this sort of compound community and everybody has the same bank account. Uh, Ellen, that's above my pay grade. Um, let me let me say a little bit because I've got like two more minutes. Let me say a little bit about uh, this first, this the first verse and the last verse. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and the fellowships, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. I want to say that's a famous verse, and um, they were a learn from the beginning. They were a learning community. They let the apostles teach them the same things that Jesus had taught them immediately. And intuitively, the apostles who had been with Jesus uh, carried on his teaching role. Now, they weren't the Savior. They never claimed to be the, uh, carry on his saving role. But they taught from the beginning. Um, and then they loved being together. Their fellowship, they gathered together. Um, that's one of the things I love about this church. Is that we love being together, but we also love welcoming people in. Um, and, and then breaking of bread. So they, that, that is an early form of the Eucharist. But it was probably almost certainly in the context of a larger meal. And, um, I mean, Jesus says, breaks bread says, whenever you do this, do this in remembrance of me. It means whenever you have a meal. That's why we say the blessing, right? At, at the, uh, but, but, but it was in a sense that when, when, they, when they broke bread together, they recognized that they were looking. It just was an opportunity to look at Jesus and His sacrifice. So they broke bread, and they and they were a church committed to prayer. And I've been thinking a lot more about what it might look like to have a prayer meeting, a regular prayer meeting here, and what um, just to I've talked about prayer before, but just a more robust. So I'm, that's part of what I want to think about this summer while I'm taking a break from the teaching of this class. So, um, and then the last verse, verse 47. Um, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So Pentecost didn't stop on that day. Pentecost kept going, right? The Holy Spirit continued. And I just long for Pentecost to show up here. And I think that it will. I think it, in some ways it has and does. A guy I've listened to a little bit named Reggie McNeil was talking about, he, he's, he's kind of... Um, in touch with these things all around the globe, and he he's, he kind of joked that uh, in India the church they don't have time for um, evangelism programs because too many people are coming to Christ. They have to. Um, it, it's, he says Pentecost every day, and I wonder if um, I mean it's in the midst of persecution. I don't certainly don't want us to have persecution like that, but I wonder what it would look like for us to invite people in every day. Well, that's it for a while uh, for the E100. Uh, but we'll be back. We're, we're going to go all the way through, and we'll pick that up back up in, in August.
Uh, if you're interested in teaching uh, the Gospel in Life class, remember it's a video, about 10 or 12 minutes, and then uh, facil- facilitating discussion. And um, it's, kind of, it's not alpha, like it's, not, it's like beta. You know, it's just a, it's sort of a, it's just a step in the, uh, how, do, how do you apply the Gospel in life? That's, that's what it is. Anyway, um, bless you. Go to church.